0: of you a year ago and said, one of these days, you're going to have to escape from somewhere. I'm guessing you probably would have thought that was a silly idea.
1: Probably. And we probably would have chosen not to go. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, so where were you when when all of the attacks started? We were in uh, Yafo, South Tel Aviv, south end of Tel Aviv at a hotel
2: can you tell us about your trip? What brought you there in the first place?
1: Yeah, I was uh, I was invited to speak at a business conference. And so we decided to add on a little sightseeing. So I brought my wife with me. And, uh, you know, we saw some sights. And um, actually had Shabbat dinner with one of my friends over there that was part of the conference. And the next morning, Saturday morning, we woke up with sirens and explosions. And my friend calling me saying, hey, are you all right? You need to get out of the country as soon as possible, whatever it takes. So, and that was the beginning of four days of trying to get out.
0: Yeah, no kidding. So, Tina, describe a little bit of that morning. I mean, you hear the sirens going off, as Bill just described, and you hear some of the uh, the rocket explosions and things. How long did it take to assimilate exactly what was going on? Did you figure out what was happening fairly quickly?
3: Um. Actually, no, because, you know, we've read the news. We know that Israel and, and Palestine are, are in conflict quite often. And so we kind of thought that it was just more of the same. It was when our friend Ariel called and said, you're not taking this seriously enough. We're under attack and, and this is not going to get easier. It's going to get worse that's when it really hit us. And, and of course it wasn't that long, but we weren't taking it as seriously as we needed to at
1: first. You, you don't know what to think, you know? But that four days seems like about a month to us. I mean, <laughs> so it may have been five minutes, but it seemed like forever.
2: <laughs> Before we talk more about those four days, because I can imagine um, how difficult that was, as you were planning this trip, did you have any reservations whatsoever about going?
3: Um, I had had several weeks of pretty serious dread about it, and I I actually questioned quite a bit whether we should go. Um, and we talked to our friend there, and he said, as long as you stay in the safe places, you will be safe. He said, you do what I say, you'll be safe. And that was one of our guiding things when we were in trouble is if Ariel said we should or should not do something, we followed his advice to the letter.
0: Now, Probably why we got out. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so it took, as you said, four days following Saturday when the attacks started. When were you scheduled to come home?
1: We were scheduled to come home on the 12th, on
0: Thursday. And, and so, so, so describe that path from getting to, you know, from Saturday to, to Thursday, or, or when you finally were able to leave the country, uh, w- what kinds of roadblocks did you have in front of you? Because obviously, by that point, a lot of people wanted to get out.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, Saturday we tried to change our flights, and you we changed them. But I mean, the air, I was actually holding the phone up so the airlines could hear the bombs; so they didn't even know what was going on. But they they changed our flight. Of course, it got canceled, and uh, later that day we. Found, you know, Ariel said, hey, I found you another flight, but you have to go to the airport. We went to the airport, it was gonna be $5,000. The airport came under attack while we were there. That was a crazy adventure. Um, and then they canceled all the flights. So we had to get back to the hotel. So that was our Saturday. Sunday, we decided uh, due to Ariel's advice and our tour guide to try to get north. So first thing Sunday morning, we managed to get to the train station to get about 30 miles north of Tel Aviv, which is out of most of the missile range. But it was also about, you know, 5, 10 miles from the West Bank. And by that time, things were starting to get a little dicey up there as well. So that was uncomfortable that day, um, Saturday. Um, but that's where we're trying to formulate. Sunday. Oh, that was Sunday, right? And so we're trying to formulate how to what the next steps are. Everything was like, what are we going to do next, you know? Um, Monday morning, uh, a friend said, hey, maybe you could get out through Jordan. And so we talked to our tour guide, who was, he was amazing. And he immediately made some calls Monday morning. He had a contact in Jordan. And he said, if you can book a flight, so I booked like the fifth flight out of Amman. And he said, you know, it's going to cost you some money, but if we can get the cash, and get connected with this guy. He can get you across the border into Jordan. And so within like 10, 20 minutes, we were in the car. And he was—he had to take his son to report for military duty. But he took a little time, drove us up. Actually, there's a little passageway between the West Bank and the Golan Heights that connects into Jordan. And so goes through the Valley of Armageddon, which was a little interesting. Wow. But yeah. Yeah. A lot of things go through your head in these moments. Uh, but we got to the border and a series of events there. If you have a minute to hear those, it's Sure, it's please, please. So we, uh, we got there. Our guide kind of helped us. And he's Israeli, so they wouldn't let him pass certain points. But we paid our fee to get out of Israel. And then we go to the checkpoint. And um, I had to give cash to this guy on the other side once we got through there, U.S. dollars. I didn't have enough. I gave I gave our guide every shekel, Israeli shekel that I had, and he gave me whatever U.S. dollars he had. It still wasn't enough, so he actually gave me $100 out of his own pocket wow. to help us get through. And then we got on the bus that takes you across the Jordan River, and they wanted 10 shekels for the bus ride, which I had no shekels. <laughs> and so...
3: It's funny now, but it wasn't. It funny wasn't then. funny at the
1: moment. Yeah. <laughs> so we gotten that far, and so a priest actually stood up, rummages through his pockets, and manages to find ten shekels, and makes it possible for for us to be on that bus. And uh, we got over the river, and there went we went through three three or four different checkpoints over there just to get through. Cause so you're supposed to have a visa. We didn't have a visa. Um, we got bounced around quite a bit. Got Officials asking, what are you doing? Um, But somehow, you know, the guide showed up. We gave him all the cash. Somehow, things work a little differently over there. Somehow, he got us past guys with machine guns and everything else, and we got into a cab to get us out of the checkpoint. And at one point, he said, you know what? I know this is probably a little nerve-wracking for you. We're going to have to change cars. And we pulled off the side of the road, and uh, there was a, another Arab man standing there with a the car and the trunk open. And he says, okay, get out of the car. And we're like, ah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do, do we have to get out of the car? Do yeah, we, I can imagine. This,
1: so we're just going step by step. I mean, it was fate. That's what it was. And uh, so we got out of the car. Fortunately, only our luggage went in the trunk. So we were happy about that. Mm-hmm. And um, we got in the, that car. And he finally says, welcome to Jordan. Says your flight's at 10, we don't have to be at the airport till seven. I got an hour, you want to see Jordan? And the guy was the nicest guy in the world, showed us some things in Jordan we wouldn't have been able to see. And um, eventually we got on the flight to Dubai and then to Chicago and uh, we're able to get home. But it was a lot of crazy moments to get there.
2: I cannot imagine the adrenaline that started on Saturday that maybe didn't stop for a week after you got home. I mean, I don't even know when you come down from that. Talk us through some of the emotions and the fear and just the uncertainty of what was going to happen.
1: Well, I'll let Tina speak to some of this, but for me, I mean, everybody talks about the fear. I don't know that in the moment that I had time to feel fear, because my mind was about, What's next? You know, this is intense. We got to move. We got to get out of here. We got to get off the street. We got to get into the shelter. We got to find a way to get out. You know, I didn't have the time to think about so much whether I was afraid. When we were at the airport under attack, there was a few moments where it was like, this could be it, you know, but it was intense and draining. I think it was afterwards that it really starts to hit you.
0: Yeah, I bet so. you were never so happy to see Chicago. And, and, Tina, if you could take us through a little bit of that, uh, that what went on at the airport at Tel Aviv and what it was, those moments that were the scary moments that led you to finally say, you know what, this isn't worth it. We're leaving the airport. We're getting out of here.
3: Um, you know, the airport, we, we had already scheduled three flights by then, and then we were trying to be there, you know, seeing if we could get on the last you know, a few seats available on another flight, but we saw hundreds, maybe thousands of people that we assume had the same thoughts as we did, just try to get on any flight there was. Um, and so, you know, it was, it was just an amazing group of people trying to get out same as us. And they were, they were polite, and even though there was there was desperation, no one was unkind that we saw. It was pretty amazing. The when the alarm sounded, and of course we don't understand Hebrew, and we we heard an announcement, and all of a sudden there was this crush going into a hallway, and we thought, uh, I guess we follow the the crush. So we dropped our bags and just got in the got in the crush, we held on to each other because it was such a crush that we could have easily been separated and that was the last thing we wanted. Sure. Um, and got into the stairwell, that's when we started hearing the sirens and the explosions going off. And we, there was one woman there who was crying and her husband was comforting her. And I, I just, I... Uh, I felt like I was so glad that I had someone with me that if I was feeling like she did, I would have the strength of somebody else. Um, but but I wasn't really afraid. I was just touched by the reactions of others and how kind they were to each other and that there wasn't you know a lot of uh, screaming and pushing and madness and you know, I've got to get myself to safety and who cares what everybody else is doing. I was very touched by that.
2: Did you, along the way, have any contact with the U.S. government, with any officials? Were you getting any help from over here?
1: We were in touch with the um, the embassy. And basically, at that point, what they said was, we're not helping you get yourself out. Wow. And, um yeah, it said, here's some places you might be able to go. Some flights are going. I mean, it was basically you want to go to Kabul or Russia. And we're like, I'm not sure that sounds great. Uh huh. Um, or try to get across the border. And it says, we'll reevaluate the situation and see if we're going to do anything different, which eventually they did, like on Friday, I guess. But, yeah, that was it was more of a, hey, sign up here so that we know that you exist. And if and when you need us, then we'll know how to get a hold of you. So.
3: But they did, there were periodic warnings about situations we should be aware of. They said, be aware of, um, you know, being in large groups, be aware of lone actor terrorists who may be, you know, anywhere. Um, They gave us warnings about what we should be aware of. And, And I felt like for ignorant Americans who don't face these kinds of issues, It was helpful to know, you know, culturally and and in a completely different situation, what we may be facing and what to be aware of and what to watch for.
0: Yeah, and just the people... But not
3: to be naive about...
0: Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. And just the the people that you had to rely on who came through for you. It's it's such an amazing story. I mean, there are people texting in right now to the radio station asking when the movie is going to come out. So it's something to consider as well. But just, you know, both of us, I think, are curious about what your emotions are now, now that you're home and safe. And we're certainly happy that you are you're still watching what's going on over there. I would assume day by day and seeing people that were in the same plight that you are, who are still stuck there and still very much in danger. What is it that, that goes through your head and your heart watching what's happening there?
1: Well, my friend who got, he actually is a major in the IDF, the one that we had Shabbat dinner with. He's been called up and I talk to him every day. And he tells me some of the horrific things that he's dealing with that we're not maybe seeing in the news here, you know? It's it's very real, but you know to answer your question about coming back, I mean it was it was for me it was a few days before I wasn't jumpy every time I heard a car door slam yeah or you know a loud noise you know you're like it just comes back you know that response um, I mean it's better now I, I I worry for the people we met good people on all sides of this you know one thing that we learned I mean. Hamas is Israel's enemy. Hamas is the Palestinians' people's enemy. They have the same enemy. All, most of the normal people, they just want peace, you know? And, uh, it's just a horrible situation with a lot of horrible stuff going on.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, listen, we thank you both for telling us your story. Uh, and we're, as again, we're just so happy that the two of you were able to get out and, and make it home safely. We're happy to have you back in Liberty and uh, Bill and Tina Litster, Thank you so much for joining us and taking us through some of this. It's just an amazing ordeal today.
2: Thank, thank you.
0: you. You got it. Take care. And
2: take Yeah. Take care. seems like a weird way to end it, but definitely take care of yourselves. Uh, and we're getting a lot of comments on the text line too. So thanks for those. All right, we'll take a break here. Uh, coming up, we will switch gears. Family goes to the emergency room. Uh, what made the ER doctor question the relationship between About this relationship between a family, they go to the emergency room, and an ER doctor there questions whether mom is really mom.
0: Yeah, and you know the last time we had a story like this was not that long ago. It seems like it was just about a week ago where there was another you know questioning of a dad who was with his two kids because he's African American, his kids are mixed race, and they didn't trust him. This is similar in some ways and very different in other ways, because in this case you had a stepmom who's bringing her stepson into the ER. and what made the difference here was her age. Um, she's only about five or six years older than the stepson.
2: Yes. Um, sort of a tragic way that this whole story began. Uh, her name is Sage Posh. She is in her 20s, uh, and she put all this on TikTok. Uh, she is married to Nick. Uh, no, Nick is the son, excuse me, who yeah. injured his leg at school. Uh, the way this family came to be a family was um, the parents... Uh, passed away two years apart and so she said Nick was already spending so much time with us it made sense that we continue raising him she and her fiance so they legally adopted him in 2022 they also have a 17 month old son saying we now have a teenager and a toddler Um, and so Nick as the Today Show points out when he's out and about and she meets his friends she introduces her as his mom I mean as far as far as this is concerned this is mom yep but you go to the ER and you have a doctor who only sees the age difference and doesn't believe that this can be true
0: yeah it's also it should be noted for the record here she's in her mid-20s she looks like she's about 15
2: yeah she really does they could be brother and sister easily I mean, of the same age
0: yep. easily. And and yeah. and that's what they thought. That's what the doctor thought is like, this. This cannot possibly be this, this 15-year-old boy's mother. Uh, there's no possible way. So they had to do some digging and find out that, yes, she actually is legally and in every other respect, his
2: mom. And just as we keep going with the story, if you've ever been in that position, for whatever reason, especially at the doctor, like especially at the ER – where it's been questioned you're you know you're there with your child or relative and it's questioned whether this is you know suspiciously whether this is really your child because that's what she worried about she said you know we get it for questions of safety we understand why people would wonder what's up here
0: sure and not only that i mean presumably at the er you might need all kinds of things you might need surgery you might need drugs mm-hmm. you might be you might be in need of something that a parent would have to sign off on uh, or, you know, a legal guardian of some kind would have to sign off on. It. And if you think you're looking at a, instead of a woman in her mid-20s, if you think you're looking at a 15-year-old girl, I mean, it's, it's enough of a problem that there are people who go to ERs and urgent cares and things like that seeking drugs. And I'm sure that's what probably crossed their mind, is that this is a scam to try to get pain meds.
2: He fell, right, in yeah. football? Yep, that's what happened? Yep. And
0: I don't know if he broke his leg, but he did some damage to it somewhere.
2: Yeah, and so it's immediate, you know, You and I assume that because they legally adopted him, he's probably on their health insurance. I mean, all that paperwork, I assume because you legally adopt, all that paperwork is legit and shows that relationship and shows that he is legally theirs and all of that. I assume she then carries all that paperwork with her in case that ever comes up as a question. But the doctor asked where his real mom was. <laughs> This is a kid who's just I'm lost right both parents yeah. in a short period of time. Right? Uh-huh. Like that's already going to hit to the core because what does he then say? My mom died. Right. This is my mom now?
0: Well, it, and and don't you kind of wish you were him so that you could say that just to see the look on the doctor's face? Would you like to see her death certificate, doctor? I can right. bring it to you. Yeah. Uh and again, I mean it's tough because you can understand it that that it's not I mean, it's it's not obvious. The relationship isn't obvious, and you understand why they're asking. But is there a, is there a softer way to do that where you're not going to offend anybody and just say, okay, th- this looks off to me. Is there somebody that can explain how this relationship works?
2: Yeah, what's the way that you can say it in a situation where he needs pretty immediate medical care? Yeah. And you don't have a lot of time for a lot of bedside manner, you got to make sure the kid is safe. Right. I and mean, that's, your, that's your top priority. Yeah, to your point, is there a way to say, listen, I'm not trying to say there's anything suspicious going on, but you must know how this looks and try. That's where bedside manner really matters.
0: Right, And, and it really it comes back to the same question that we had about that first case where you have the guy in the airport with the two kids, is that if you had to prove it, I mean, you know, what what paperwork should she have been carrying with her or, you know, probably will be from now on just to make sure that if questions ever do come up in a situation like this where there's an emergency that she'd be able to prove it. Yeah, this is actually my legal son.
2: My apologies for not knowing the answer to this, but if you have adopted a child or are are adopted, um I know what happens if you adopt at birth the birth certificate becomes the adoptive parents. It's as if that is your biological child. If you adopt an older child where they've already had an established birth certificate and they have a birth mom that they, what happens to the birth certificate? What document do you get that shows legally this is now your son.
0: Yeah, baby. Yeah, and and that's the thing is, I don't know if it's the birth certificate, I don't know that they would change that, but, uh, or or issue a new one, but there has to be some kind of legal paperwork that has that same state seal stamped onto it or whatever that is official looking, that you would be able to show at an emergency room or some other uh, situation where you would need to prove that.
2: Again, to John's point, you're in a situation where you have to prove legally you have authority here. And you have to keep that with you all the time because you never know who else is going to ask. I don't want to dream up scenarios, but police may ask. I mean, you never know where that's going to come up.
0: Yeah. Uh, and and so, yeah, if you've got any information on that about you know, once you've adopted somebody, especially if it's a case where the biological parents are deceased, what kind of information, what do you have to carry with you? What's the best idea to make sure you don't have, end up in a situation where the kid is denied care or has his care delayed because of something like this?
2: 913-586-7798 if you want to hear. Uh, still to come this hour, we will go to Minnesota I know sometimes kids learn to hunt but in this case we have a couple of hunters two of them accidentally shot by kids out hunting get to that still to come here on kmbz Talk about the story that we saw uh, out of today.com and it's what a family looks like it's not always traditional in this case you have a woman in her 20s and her fiance who adopted last year a 15-year-old boy named Nick. Uh, he, friend of the family already, they already knew each other and his mom and dad both had died. And so Sage and her fiance decide to legally adopt this 15-year-old. She looks younger than him. She looks younger than 15. So they go to the emergency room, he has a leg injury and you have an ER doctor that is questioning how this woman who looks to be in elementary school could have could be the legal parent of this 15 year old
0: sure and and even if she's able to show id showing that she's what 22 23 whatever still that means you know if she's mom she's seven years older than him so the questions came and it was a situation that kind of you know got out of control fairly quickly we'll go to alicia real quick in missouri who has something to add in on this hi alicia
4: Hey, so with the whole adoption process, you guys had asked about birth certificates and documentation. Yes. Um, and all types of adoptive, foster, any type of custody even issues, there should be a court order um, that explains the custody arrangement, whether it's fully adopted whether it's just a temporary custody situation, there will be a legal document um, that is signed by the court, usually the county that this is this happens in, and then they can, if there's a major issue with it, he, you know, they can just present it to the doctor saying, yes, I am legal guardian. This is what's going on. You also asked about the birth certificates. Most of the time, and even if they are, if a person is adopted at birth, um, the birth certificate will either be written under the adoptive parent's name or amended as the um, adoptive parent's. For example, our oldest is adopted. He was six months old by the time we brought him home. Um, The adoption decree, everything was finalized by the time he was nine months old. Um, shortly after the adoption decree was certified, we then got a birth certificate, an amended birth certificate from the state we adopted him from with our names as his parents.
0: Did, so, now, does it – Does it, pardon me for interrupting, but does it still yes. have the name of the biological parents on there as well? Nope. Just you? It does not. Okay. Mm-hmm. Interesting.
4: Yeah. And so it, it has something that it's been amended – But it has no tracking of his birth parents. And this is, depends on the state, it is due to the fact of closed adoptions and to where the birth parents want no contact, no information, um, and it's It's really archaic laws and stuff. There's a whole host behind that. But yes, um if they so choose to amend his birth certificate, he could have had his birth certificate amended um, to have their names on it. But at this age more than likely it's probably not, and she just has to provide the court documentation. The court order,
0: yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Great. Alicia, thank you. Yeah, I I hadn't even thought about it in terms of closed adoptions, but that makes sense why the the biological parents' names would not be on the birth certificate following an adoption.
2: It's fascinating because some of you were texting in about you issuing new birth certificate when someone's name changes. And I would think at 15, he's probably not changing his last name. He's probably keeping the the last name that he was born with. That
0: would make sense. Yeah. So
2: you wouldn't you wouldn't just issue a new one. He had 15 years with the parents that were his parents.
0: Yep. And it almost sounds like the kind of thing that, I mean, there, there should almost be a card. Instead of having a court order, which you're going to yeah. have to carry around with you and, you know, can get damaged and things like that, you should get some kind of a card that, that says, okay, yes, uh, court the court mandated that this is now my son. Here's everybody's names and birthdates. And yes, it's me.
2: Yes. Um, And frankly, it's even, you've already lost both parents. Yeah. It's already been a rough couple of years to then have to have that conversation and present this paperwork so you can get your leg worked on is just painful. Further making a situation worse. Definitely. um, Hopefully they worked it out. Okay. It's hunting season. As many of, you know, uh, and in this case, we go to, uh, Minnesota, the story's out of Minneapolis, but it happened in a couple of different places. You have, um, parents who are out hunting with their younger children. Uh, in one case, it was a 12 year old that was with them. And in another case, the kid was 10, but in two situations, you have adults. Accidentally shot by kids while they're out hunting.
0: Yeah. And it brings to mind, I mean, the obvious question, which is how old is too young? Because in the first case, and this one actually was fairly close to the Twin Cities in a place called Becker Township, Minnesota, that it was a guy who was out hunting with his 12 year old daughter. They were in a deer stand. He wasn't hunting. So he didn't you know, he he didn't have a gun of his own at the time. He was just with her. She was doing the hunting. She had just successfully shot a deer when she accidentally fired another round and struck her dad in the leg. That's all the detail we have on it. Okay. As far as how she ended up firing the second round, we we don't know, except that it was an accident. Uh, He's okay. Another family member who was present applied a tourniquet to his leg before first responders arrived. He was taken off to North Memorial Health in Robbinsdale for treatment, and that's what we know about that one. In the second incident, it was in Hubbard County, which is just south of Bemidji, Minnesota, a place I know you're familiar with, Jamie.
2: Extremely, yep.
0: Uh, and the, the victim, in this case, a 50-year-old man, had just taken a 10-year-old boy out hunting, was explaining how to unload a bolt-action Ruger 270 hunting rifle when the boy accidentally pulled the trigger and around pierced both of the victim's buttocks.
2: And he was airlifted to Fargo Hospital. Yep. So that was no joke because there's a hospital in Bemidji.
0: So, yeah, it is. So it was, yeah, kind of a big deal., um, so we have two incidents that take place on the same day, and it's both adults that are out there teaching kids how to hunt or hunting with kids. a twelve year old girl, a ten year old boy, and both of them end up with a it, accident an accidental gunshot wound.
2: and both of these situations were during youth hunting events, designed for kids to be out hunting. So my question about that is then, How do you prevent, I mean, accidents happen, but these accidents could have been fatal and we're talking about guns here. So it it could have gone a lot differently than it did. And again, in both cases, in in the first case, um, she accidentally fired another round and in the other case, the boy accidentally pulled the trigger while being taught how to unload this gun. And we're not talking about like five and six year olds here. We're talking about kids that are going to be old enough to know a little better. I think,
0: yes. Old enough to know better. Sure. But when I think back to myself at ages 10 and 12, what I think about is the physical development that isn't there yet. I mean, your hands aren't as big as they're going to get. Your arms aren't as big as they're going to get. You you know, you're not as well in control of your body. Um, I mean, they used to call it the awkward age right? right, right before you hit puberty. Of where, you know, your body's growing and things are, you know, different sizes than they used to be and you still don't know how to work this thing very well. And all of the mistakes that I can remember making at that time were because of that. It was, you know, everybody was gawky and awkward and, you know, and and, and just klutzy. So I don't know if those if, are
2: words t- I like associated with using a gun. Yeah, right.
0: Exactly. I, <laughs> so because of that, and I know, I mean, we've got a zillion people listening who are all, you know, I was eight years old and Grandpa mm-hmm. took me out and we shot a bear. Yeah, okay, I get it. But doesn't it seem like that's a bad idea in a lot of cases to take a kid who's that young and just take him out and give him a hunting rifle?
2: And again, you're sh- in, in one case she'd already shot it. She'd already, you know, she'd already done it um she had just successfully shot a deer so she's learned but she still accidentally fired another round um 913 586 how do you keep these things from happening how do you keep to, to somebody who just said adults make the same mistakes this is quite
0: <laughs> you're not making <laughs> me happy about hunting <laughs> yeah. if adults do that too yeah
2: yeah but these are kit to john's point kids are physically a little different than adults. And and you're right that, you know, guns can be heavier and they don't quite know how to handle them. And you can be awkward about the trigger finger. I mean, all of that. Two incidents in one weekend is a lot. How do you keep that from happening?
0: Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because you put it in any other context and we talk about <laughs> things that kids are too young to do and we can list them off. Um, you know, again, going back into the past, there was a terrible incident that happened with a seven-year-old girl who was trying to fly a plane across the country and got ice on the wings and crashed and she and her father died. Well, she was 7. Right. And she was trying to control an airplane. I mean, you know, and and at the time you had a bunch of people that said, "Oh, you know, this is the father trying to expect too much out of his daughter. But okay, we're supposed to hand a 10-year-old boy a gun?
2: Yeah, just because they can do it once or are capable of learning to do it, yeah, doesn't mean they should do it. Like, we're capable of of knowing a lot of things when you're young doesn't mean we should do it. We don't trust these
0: kids to go to an R-rated
2: movie. Right, (laughs) right. But hand them a rifle
0: and let them go out and shoot a deer. It just seems like that is, uh, you know, you don't get a driver's license until you're 16. You don't get a learner's permit until you're 15. That uh, there are a lot of things that you're not considered Uh, mentally or physically capable of handling until you get to a much later age. And yet we've got events that are centered around handing kids rifles and teaching them how to kill animals with them.
2: As we expected, we have some of you that want to weigh in. We'll take a break. (laughs) We'll get your calls lined up. We'll get to your comments next on KMBZ. Would have expected here. Uh, we'll get to your calls here in just a sec. For if you missed the beginning of this, we had a youth hunting event in Minnesota over the weekend, and in two separate incidents in separate parts of the state, in one case you had a 12-year-old girl who had just successfully shot a deer and then accidentally fired the gun and hit. I think it was a parent that she hit in the leg. Yep, dad. In the other case, dad was teaching the 10-year-old how to unload a very fancy rifle—the name that escapes me—and he accidentally fired that gun, shot dad in the butt, dad had to go to a hospital in Fargo. I mean, so it wasn't minor. A lot of, I I get it, text lines like, well, two accidents in a weekend, it's not that big of a deal. It, it is kind of a big deal. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, it is if you're the one who got shot in the butt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's good to see that everybody's being calm and rational about this. But, uh, you know, we're, we're also being called gun grabbers and banners and all of this stuff because nobody's paying attention to what we say. It's just, oh, how dare you say a bad thing about guns? Oh, we can't have that. Oh, no. Yeah, you know what? It, it, calm down. Uh, we'll go to the phones and go to Eric and Raymore. Hello,
5: Eric. Hey, what's going on? How y'all doing? Hi. We're hanging in there. How's it going with you? I'm doing okay. I had to jump with the subject. You know, me being an instructor, um, one of the issues here is that people really don't understand what really safety is when it comes down to guns. One, I would never give a rifle or a handgun to a young boy, or even somebody that is experienced, has gone hunting before or gun shooting before. They should be supervised. Okay. Even grown people somewhat need to be supervised by somebody who understands the importance of uh, keeping your finger off the trigger. treating non non-guns will throw their loaded. Keep the gun pointed in a safe direction. Be aware you're talking about what's beyond it. At the same time, uh, never catch a phone gun. These safety fundamentals, people just don't take them seriously. Even experienced shooters. Yeah. I've been around experienced shooters that not take that. Did, didn't didn't did, didn't didn't
0: we have a vice president a few years back who shot his friend in the face on a hunting trip?
5: Yes, Dick Cheney.
0: Yeah, yeah. uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it just goes through. and I think he had had a little bit of experience with guns before that.
5: Yeah, and it's sad. I mean, everybody, you know, I've been a police officer, I've been a military guy, and that in corrections, and I've had like forty years experience with guns. And when I became an instructor. Man, my eyes really open up to how important it is to be safe to understand those fundamentals. Because I, I would have a class, and I'd have a guy in there with a, a gun in the holster on, on his, you know, inside his pants. He's carrying, and this guy walking around with a round in the chamber. And guess what? This guy never shot a gun ever in his life. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of environment are we creating to where? These people see these movies like John Wick and other movies, and you go over and say, well, I got to get a gun. I got to go get a gun. You need to first get training. You right. how to operate that gun safely and not kill yourself with someone else.
0: Yeah, that and that's you're right about that. That's another subject entirely. But, the, yeah, that idea that everybody thinks they're Rambo, even if they've never touched a gun before, yeah, that's been going on for a long time. I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you don't know. That's been going on for a long time. Everybody thinks, well, the guys in the movie make it look so easy, so it mm-hmm. must be easy.
5: <laughs> right. Uh-huh. It's not easy. It's not easy. You need, if you go out and purchase a firearm, if you're there with a child with a firearm, you need to be there supervising that child. And you need to be somebody with experience, not somebody who just picked up a gun a year ago. You need to surround yourself with educated instructors or educated gun owners. You got it. That's what's going on here. That's why you keep having this happening time in and time out because people are not educated on firearm safety. Eric
0: couldn't couldn't have said it better. Thank you very much for the call. Thanks for
2: getting in. Yeah, Um, We might have to carry calls past noon if we've got them. We don't do that very often because I feel like you and I need to talk about something for a second. The number of people that are saying it's an accident and accidents happen and are excusing this by saying, it's an accident. It happens because of, you know, things just happen. And in thousands of kids that are going to be hunting over a weekend, you would expect something like this to happen.
0: Yeah, there's a, but there's a reason that we don't put 10-year-olds behind the wheel of a car. It, it, and and the thing is, nobody's everybody's fine with that. Quite a bit of activity surrounding an accident. Oh look, traffic reports. <laughs> uh, I think we need to turn Northbound that off. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I uh, you know nobody has a problem with it. When, when you when you say okay, we're not going to allow people behind the wheel of a car until they're 15 years old. Everybody's sort of fine with that. But mm-hmm. if you say, you know, it's really kind of a stupid idea to hand a, a gun to a 10-year-old, then people lose their minds and act like you're some kind of commie pinko that, you know, wants to to destroy America. And it's like, come on. I mean, you wouldn't put a kid—we <laughs> we had kids running factories in the early part of the 20th century. We mm-hmm. found out a lot of them died when you did that. So we stopped doing that because yeah. kids aren't able to handle that kind of heavy machinery when they're that young. Guess what? Most of them can't, can't handle a gun either.
2: To which I ask, and I've asked several people, if these two adults had died, which they could have, would you still be telling me the same thing? Yeah. Well, sometimes accidents happen. I, I hope that you wouldn't be. I hope you would be saying, OK, maybe we have to take a look at this because people have died here.
0: Here's the logical problem with that, though. Yes, accidents happen. And what do we do? We take steps to keep right. them from happening again.
2: Right. I mean, I hate to bring the car example in. I'll, I'll take my fall for it here. But people cause accidents that are deadly. They're still accidents. We charge them for it. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't allow, oh, just an accident. They didn't mean to do it.
0: Right. And if, if you're going to tell me that you think that a kid isn't more likely to screw up than an adult, especially when it comes to something like that 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 has to do with coordination, then you're being belligerent and, and deliberately ignorant of the facts.
2: If you want to hang on with us here, I know there's a lot on the table. If you're on hold, you want to hang on. We'll get to your calls next here on KMBZ.